Second Corinthians chapter 11, verse number 2. It's a verse, I love this verse for a long, long time. Paul the Apostle says these words, Second Corinthians 11, verse 2. I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. I'll read it again. For I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. When it says, I promised you to one husband, uh, Paul is using this picture of marriage, obviously. And when people get born again, when people get saved, people get filled with the Spirit, they encounter God. It's like you have become, in Western culture, we'll use the term engaged to be married. I remember many years ago, I was in... Virginia, the state of Virginia in the United States. And um, I would speak fairly regular at this group there in Virginia. And they were all old ladies. Um, they were all seniors, uh, citizens, but they had been serving the Lord for, for decades, literally for decades. And they were the, the shakers and the movers back in the 1960s and the 1970s on the, on the forefront of all the, what God was doing at that time of history uh, in the United States. And I remember sharing uh, the scripture with them. And you know, they loved it. All those old ladies just, the idea of being romantically involved at that age in their life and the idea of being engaged or espoused or betrothed to Jesus carried a lot of meaning for their lives. And it's a powerful illustration that this scripture uses. If you have other versions of the Bible, instead of saying, I promise to you one husband, it might use the word espoused, or it might use the word betrothed. I would betrothed you to one husband. Now, for those of us in the modern Western world, um, we're not accustomed to hearing that word espoused, and we're not accustomed to the word betrothed. We tend to use a modern word like engaged. You're engaged to be married. But the Western customs and tradition of engagement that we practice are in some points significantly very different. Uh, than the culture in which the Bible was written. I know that times I've preached in Africa, the African culture understands this concept of being betrothed or being espoused far, far greater than people in the Western world. They catch the, they, they catch the meaning of Scripture far quicker than we do because their culture is much closer to the biblical culture. And if we want to understand what the scripture has to say about this, we have to consider what marriage is like through Eastern eyes. If we want to figure out what a lot of the scripture actually means. For instance, today in our modern West, when people are engaged to be married, 
It is not a legally binding contract. If an engaged couple decides to not marry after they have been engaged, there is no intervention from the law courts. It is simply a matter between the two of them themselves. But in Scripture, a betrothal is binding. And even though the couple had not exchanged their vows on the wedding day, it would still require a divorce. You had to divorce, even if you weren't married yet, if you were betrothed uh, to be married. Uh, do you remember the story of Joseph and, and Mary in, in the New Testament, in the Gospels, that Joseph, who couldn't figure out why Mary was pregnant, even though they hadn't yet been married, needed to consider putting her away or divorcing her. And betrothal or espousement in biblical culture is a legally binding thing, and to dissolve it even require divorce, even if you weren't yet married. And the reason for that is because a contract had been written up, a wedding deed had been signed and agreed between families, payments had been made, and all that is set in motion in the betrothal, and it becomes a legal document. So if you want to dissolve it before you get married, you've got to go through the process of divorce, even if you're not married yet. Another difference is in the modern Western world, it's the government who declares when a couple is married, and it's the power of the government to declare when a couple is divorced. Not in Bible times. The government didn't have that power in Bible times. That was simply, it was the husband who married, and it was the husband who divorced. And marriages were negotiated, negotiated through families by means of marriage deeds. And understanding some of this background will help you to grasp and mine a lot of the power of, of the scriptures that speak about this. Now scripture is abundant both in the Old and the New Testaments in using the metaphor of marriage to describe the relationship of God to his people. I'll just give you a few examples. Isaiah chapter 54 verse 5, it says, For the Lord, your maker, is your husband. Hosea chapter 2 and verse 19, the Lord says, I will betroth you to me forever. In the New Testament, in Mark chapter 2 verse 19, Jesus says, How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he's with them? And Jesus referred to himself as the bridegroom. Ephesians 5.32, when Paul describes about husbands and wives, he makes this comment and he says, this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. At the end of time in Revelation chapter 19 and verse 7, it says, for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. And there's just so many scriptures that, that use that picture, <coughs> the metaphor, of marriage to describe our relationship with the Lord. And it describes what our salvation is, and it describes how we prepare for the wedding day. There's just so much there in Scripture. But let's just look at some of the customs of marriage in the Bible times. Help us to understand better. For instance, marriages were normally arranged marriages. How many would like that one? Would you like to arrange marriages for your children? Or do you want them to make their own choices? 
Do you think you know better what your child needs than your child knows? It's a good question. But normally, marriages were arranged by the father of the groom. Do you know anybody who was married through that process? Have you ever met anybody? Yeah? And actually, you have met one, because he preached here on a Sunday night once from Singapore. That was an arranged marriage that they had, and they've been married for a long time, and they're pioneering churches um, uh, throughout Europe, actually. And he met his wife the day they got engaged, and didn't see each other for nine months until the day of the wedding. And that's all knowledge they had of each other before they got married. So, it's worked well. In other words, love is something that is learned. Love is something that is learned. So, marriages in the Bible were normally arranged by the father of the groom. Sometimes that father, as in the case of Abraham, uh, had a trusted agent or a servant who was assigned the task of to find a bride uh, for his son. Sometimes in Bible culture, but not necessarily so, but sometimes in Bible culture, the consent of the bride was asked for. But not, you didn't have to get her consent. It was arranged for her. Now when the father believed he had found a suitable match for his son, he would negotiate with the father of the bride a payment price. Because her absence from her father's house needed to be compensated. And so the question is this, how many cows is she worth? How many cows is she worth? What value is going to be placed upon the bride? And what cost is the groom's family prepared to pay to receive her? And that all had to be negotiated out between families. And this payment for the bride was an obligation of the law. And it was written into a marriage contract that bound two families together. And all that was called betrothal. Now you can see why it takes a divorce to separate, even just betrothed people. All of that is written into the marriage contract. The groom, if he wanted to, he could make a voluntary gift to the bride at this point if he wanted to. It was not obligatory, but it would be a free will expression of his heart. And the value of the gift would depend upon the prosperity of the groom, for sure. The father of the bride would give his daughter a dowry of some sort, which kind of acted as her share of the inheritance that he would give to all his children. But once all those things had been agreed, it would be written into a formal marriage contract. And that marriage contract would specify the price paid for the bride. It would outline the responsibilities of the groom, the promises of the groom for his provision and for his care, and it would outline the rights of the bride. And all that was written down, sealed by the exchange of money, and became a legally binding contract. Once this contract was drawn up, and once it was signed, the couple would be now be considered, they were betrothed to be married. In other words, this seals their covenant together. 
They would not be fully married until another entire year would pass, but they were already legally bound together. And during this year, they would live in separate quarters without any sexual relationship. And part of the reason for taking a year out uh, is to prove that she is not pregnant. And all that is worked out into this marriage agreement. Now, during that year of betrothal, they each have responsibilities. The groom has got responsibilities, and the bride has got responsibilities as they both prepare for the future. The groom's greatest responsibility in that time was to prepare what is called the bridal chamber. To prepare a future home for his bride. He had to spend a year preparing it. Most often, it was in addition to his father's house, or perhaps a separate building on his father's property. And after it was complete, he would have to decorate it, and he would have to stock it with provisions. But here's an interesting thing. But only the father of the groom would determine if and when the bridal chamber was ready for the bride. In other words, the young man getting married didn't have the power to say that's good enough. Because he just might throw up anything and say, just go get the girl. You know, but it's the father that would have to say, here's the standards that it's got to meet. And you don't get your bride until I say that the house is ready. Interesting custom, isn't it? And he would be the one who would say it is prepared well enough. This house had to be beautiful, and it would normally take an entire year to prepare it. So that's the groom's major responsibility during that betrothal time. Now, the bride's responsibility during this year was that she had to prepare herself for her new life. She had to purify herself with great anticipation because chances are she's never met the fellow. And so she would have to spend the year learning about who he is, learning about his lifestyle, learning about his desires in life because she was going to be married to him and she would have to spend an entire year preparing to live in that circumstance, in that environment. She had to purify herself before she would ever get married. Remember the story of Esther, how all of those, uh, to see the king, the purification they had to go through for such a long time before they could be presented to the king. Well, the bride was to learn about her husband, was to learn about her role in the marriage, She had to learn what it would mean to enter into his inheritance. And she would have to learn what it means, what it would mean to become one with him. So how many are liking the Western culture better than this? How many are not going to commit yourself to an answer? (laughs) You know? Now during this time, this one year, uh, she would wear a veil to advertise the fact that she was out of circulation and that she would be unavailable to anybody else. In other words, she would have to demonstrate that she had been set apart for a particular man. 
Therefore, she is to resist all other offers as she waits for her one true love who was bought and paid for her. She is betrothed, which means that she has been set apart, paid for, and dedicated to another. Now, the bride would be anticipating the return of the groom, but this is a bit of mystery because she would never know exactly when he would come. Never exactly know. It could occur at any moment. And so she would have to ensure, as time went on, that she has a lamp every night that is prepared, that is filled with oil, just in case the groom surprised her by coming at night. Because the Eastern culture uh, had this understanding of what the woman thought would be something romantic. And in that culture, they thought it would be romantic for the groom to come at a midnight hour to break into the house and to steal the most treasured possession in the house. And the girls thought that was romantic. Come and break in the house to get me. You know? And... uh, That's what they looked for. That's what they looked for. And then eventually, the time comes. The year passes by. And when the father of the groom deems that this bridal chamber is now ready, he would give the approval to the son to go and to claim his bride. The groom would then go to take his wife. And typically, this would often happen in the middle of the night. He would take friends with him, a bunch of friends with him, but they would make every attempt to completely surprise the bride because he he was going to go abduct her. That's the idea. How romantic is that? Someone's coming to abduct you. You know? Uh, But it's not going to be being abducted by a stranger but the one who paid a high price for her. When the groom's family and friends got close to her house, and she kind of knows it might happen, but doesn't know exactly when it's going to happen, well, they would start making noise. They would begin to blow trumpets and blow horns, and they would shout, and they'd wake everybody up to announce the arrival. Behold, the bridegroom comes. And then once he had claimed his bride, he takes her back to her house, waking everybody else up in the town. And upon arrival, both the groom and the bride would be marvelously decked out, adorned and elaborately clothed as if they were kings and queens. And then the ceremony would begin... And they would finally be married. So you don't know what day you're going to get married. It's going to be a surprise. You just have to be prepared. And you don't know what day it's going to happen. You have to be prepared. They would finally be married. And then they would spend the next seven days alone. The two of them alone. And during the seven days where they are alone as husband and wife... All the guests, you talk about a reception. Well, we think of having receptions here, you know, one meal reception. In the Bible times, it was one week long reception. 
an entire week. You have to entertain these guests for it. As all the other guests would celebrate the sumptuous feast for seven days, waiting for the couple to emerge to rejoin them in the celebrations. And then following the feast, they would live together as husband and wife. Now that's the Bible culture. That's how they did it in Israel. How many think that's crazy? But that's how it works. And when the Bible uses metaphors, it uses all of that background information. Now I am sure that as I I, I told you the, the routine there, you were probably hearing all sorts of Bible echoes, weren't you? You're probably hearing all kinds of things that now perhaps make a little more clear sense when we read it. Because we need to consider the condition in which the Lord originally found us. There's a powerful scripture in Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 1 to 14, that describe our condition before the Lord found us. And if you read it, it's not a pretty picture. But we were rejected, thrown out in a ditch, thrown out in a field, it says in those scriptures, and and just thrown away, and the Lord came along and saw us in that condition, had mercy on us, washed us, and cleansed us, and then betrothed us to Himself. It's a powerful scripture of, of just God's grace and God's love. You know, taking people who are nothing, and yet the Lord mercifully saves us, washes us, cleanses us, clothes us, and enters into a covenant with us. I mean, read Ezekiel 16. It's a powerful, powerful scripture. Then we talked about a price having to be paid for the bride. Well, I'm sure you could think of all sorts of scriptures immediately that a price has been paid for us. Amen? 1 Corinthians 6.20, you have been bought with a price. 1 Peter 1.18, you were redeemed with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, You were slain and did purchase for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. There was a great price paid for us to be betrothed to the Lord. It wasn't cheap wasn't cheap. How many cows are we worth? Well, we're worth more than cows. We were worth the shedding of God's own blood. A price has been paid. So the Father has arranged it. A price has been paid. And the groom has given gifts to his bride at the point of betrothal. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, it says, When you believed, you were marked in Him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. 
The Greek word where it says a deposit or a different version of the Bible, it might say the earnest of your inheritance. The down payment of your inheritance. The Greek word arabon comes very, very close in our Western culture when we talk, use the term an engagement ring. The Lord has given us an engagement ring. And that engagement ring is the Holy Spirit. Now that's powerful. Because it's going to be the provision of the Holy Spirit that gives us the insight and the power to get ourselves ready for the wedding. I'm a strong believer in the Holy Spirit. I don't know if you ever noticed that or not. Unashamedly, I would be Pentecostal. I believe in the Holy Ghost. We need to live in the Spirit, walk in the Spirit, worship in the Spirit, serve in the Spirit, need the gifts of the Spirit, need the fruit of the Spirit, that the Holy Spirit is the provision for this life. And Jesus, at the time of our betrothal, gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit to help us through that whole process of being prepared for our future destiny with Him. And the Holy Spirit is His gift to help prepare us. We need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then there is a covenant that He has agreed with us. In Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34, He says, This is the covenant that I will make with them in those days. It's not going to be like the covenant that I made with their fathers when I brought them out of Egypt. And then He says, Even though I was a husband to them, even though I was a husband to them. And then when you understand that when God made covenant with the children of Israel, that it actually, he says, it's like I went in marriage vows. And when we think of the the Ten Commandments, not as legal laws, but what they are is the obligations of love. It's your marriage vows. Because I love you, Lord, I will have no other gods before you. When we got married and you gave your marriage vows, did you enter into legalism? You consider that legalism when you got married? Of course not. This is the the voluntary obligations of love. Because I love you, I will have no other gods before you. And so this covenant that God gives is, is showing that the Lord is a husband to us. And we are responding to His love with our return of love back to Him. And when we understand the Old Testament that way, the commands of Scripture are not grievous things, but they are actually joyful. So He's entered into a covenant with us. And it's already written into the contract before we're married. And then, during this time of betrothal, remember what I said the groom's responsibility is. He used to go prepare a place. Does that remind you of a scripture anywhere? Can you hear a scripture on that one? John 14, verses 2 and 3 says, My father's house has plenty of room. If that were not so, I would have told you, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. Well, if he created the heavens and the earth in six days, would you please tell me what he's been creating for the last 2,000 years? 
I'm going to prepare a place for you. And remember, he doesn't get to decide when it's good enough. The Father makes that decision. We, you and I can't even begin to imagine the glories that wait for us. The Bible says that the eye has not seen, the ear has not heard, and neither has it entered the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those that love Him. He's taken 2,000 years to prepare this place for us. It's better than what we can imagine. Far exceeding abundantly above all that we could ever imagine. But it's the Father who determines when it's ready. And that's why Jesus would make a statement like this in Mark 13.32. said, About that day or the hour no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, only the Father knows. He's the one that makes the decision. It's amazing. What's our responsibility in this period of time? Our responsibility is to prepare for our destiny as a joint heir together with Jesus. We don't simply put in time and just wait for the day to come. We anticipate the day and we give our whole being to learn about what our future is. During this time, we're to find out everything we can about our husband. We have to learn to think his thoughts. We have to learn to prepare ourselves for the throne that we're going to share with him. We have to keep ourselves clean. We have to keep ourselves spotless in mind and in heart. And we have to continually wash ourselves in the Word of God in order that we can be presented to Him in radiance, without spot and without wrinkle or any other blemish. Like any bride who is full of anticipation, she prepares herself for the ultimate day and the church is to make herself ready by doing many, many good works. Because the good works, it says in Revelation 19, as the white robes that we would wear, as the good works. We are to prepare for presentation on that day. Well, then comes one day, we kind of got an idea when it might happen, never knowing exactly, but then comes the abduction. At an unexpected hour, the bridegroom, with a lot of noise, a lot of fanfare, comes to steal his bride. Bible says he comes like a thief in the middle of the night. He's taking the most precious possession out of the house. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God, and we will be caught up together in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. It will be a day of rejoicing. We will be clothed with the garments of salvation, Isaiah 61.10 says the groom decks himself with ornaments and the bride adorns herself with the jewels. And there's the wedding feast, the marriage supper of the Lamb. You see all that picture, it really opens up a lot of things in Scripture, doesn't it? But there's one thing I left out. And here's what I left out. 
while it's not obligatory to ask the bride if she consented to the proposed marriage, it was often done. Remember how Laban said to Rebecca, are you willing to go with this man? And she said, I would. We don't know when, at what point in Jewish history this was implemented, but it became a tradition. Not in scripture, but later in history, it became a tradition. And she would have what was called the cup of acceptance. Once the terms of the contract had been specified, and the father of the bride agreed to them, then the prospective groom would pour a cup of wine for the prospective bride. If the bride agreed to the match, she would drink the cup, indicating her acceptance. Then the covenant was sealed, and the couple were considered to be betrothed. So we don't know when that tradition came in. It's not found in the Bible, but it came later traditions. If that is true, then does not that give you a little more meaning to the Lord's table? Does that give you a little more meaning to what the Lord's table is all about? It's a marriage proposal. It's somebody who paid a price to buy us. It's a covenant specifying how you'll care for us, look after us. We respond on our side of the covenant. I will have no other gods before you. And then we drink the cup. By drinking the cup we say, yes. Yes to everything. We say yes to everything. So who is it that has come to us with this marriage proposal? Who has found us in our uncleanness, but has washed us? Who has given us the promise of his inheritance and prepares a future for us? A future that is inconceivable to our minds now. When we accept the cup, we're stating that we will keep ourselves pure for his sake. When we take the cup, we're saying we will pursue no other lovers. When we take the cup, we're saying we will prepare for our future with him. When we take the cup, we're saying that we are bound by the cords of love, and thus we are obligated to fulfill his commands. His commands are not a sense of duty whatsoever to us, but they're the free will obligations of love from our hearts. By taking the cup, we're saying that we are the bride of Christ, and we will love, and we will act accordingly. New insight. See, it's not just remembering the past, but it's also anticipating our future. So Joe and Susan, if you come and join me, please appreciate it.